Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Hello and welcome to episode 3-265 of the Run Run Live podcast. I'm going to see if I can attempt a weekly schedule for a little while. I may fail, but it's worth a try. If everything goes right, we've got a good show for you today. I talk with Brian Grunder, who we've spoken with before when he ran 135 miles solo across Wisconsin last year. And he's got a new challenge with some new friends this month that we'll talk about. In section one, we'll share some thoughts of mine that I had on how we perceive people and how do we how we perceive people of great accomplishment as somehow magic or lucky and the perils in caricaturing people like that. And in section two, I will give you my Bay of Fundy race report. I know how much you like my race reports. It's a bit long, so I'll go easy on the opening and closing comments. I took a week completely off after the race, something new for me. (laughs) That last cycle, I was starting to feel some overtraining symptoms, and instead of doing what I usually do, which is to jump right back into training, I took a week totally off. So except for a long walking tour of Copenhagen, I did zero workouts. And I got back on it this week with a hot, hilly, five-mile race on the 4th of July in Harvard, Massachusetts as part of a series, the Neshoba Valley Grand Prix Series, which my uh, 10K, the Groton 10K, is part of as well. So I'm going to see if I can do the whole series. I had to uh, walk, <laughs> sort of walk-run the big hill, um, and my legs were really upset with me trying to road race at that shorter distance. My quads tightened up after the first mile, and I had to actually pull over and do a little self-massage a couple of times. But I sorted myself and finished with a respectable tempo run of 38.28, which is like 7.44 pace. So that's okay on that course in that heat. I really dislike short races, <laughs> especially when I haven't been training for them. I need to do some hill work, and I need to continue to build my base fitness. It'll come. On with the show. Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. The pitfalls of caricature. I just read Scott Jurek's book, Eat and Run. Now, Scott is one of the most famous ultra-distance runners in the world having won the Western States 100 and a bunch of other races multiple times and set several ultra records. And I have known of Scott and his reputation for years, but I had not known him until I read his book. And I I remember reading a Runner's World article on him a couple years ago, maybe 2008, 2007, that was not particularly informative. They struggled to relate the complexity of Scott's character into journalistic fare. It occurred to me that when we are confronted by stories like Scott's, we tend to assume that there's something special 
and magical about these types of people. We attribute to them some mystic ability, or worse, we attribute their success to some mystic ability. And instead of assuming that they are focused, determined, hardworking people who made the most of their abilities, we attribute their success to some sort of personal magic. Now, Scott is certainly a successful ultra runner with some innate gifts. But he invested his time in training. He did the work. He studied his craft. He experimented with his diet. He fed his mind. And he worked towards his goals. Scott was unafraid to experiment with his health and his time. Scott was willing to fail. Scott worked his experiment of one. Why do we assume that successful people are just successful? We do this for a number of reasons. One reason is we do it is because we wish it were true. We do it because we wish it were so for ourselves. Assuming a mystical magic means that maybe we too could be touched by greatness because we are special somehow. Because it's easier than doing the work, taking the time to understand, and deciding to do it. And it's so much easier than doing it. We even rewrite our own stories to comply with the myth. When we reach success, we give credit to innate ability and mysticism instead of work, focus, and determination. And I see it in myself. People think I have some sort of special toughness or skill. I mean, sure, I've gutted out plenty of races. I have transcended the pain on occasion, but it's my training that puts me in a position to do so. Without the training, as I have proven many times, there is no opportunity to succeed. We try to simplify people. We try to label them like the caricature painting of a sidewalk artist. We select certain traits, a big nose, pointy ears, and we construct a false mental mosaic around those features, believing that the mnemonic nature of our opinion is correct. Like the picture that comes to mind when someone says, he's a New Yorker. Or the picture that comes into your mind when I say I'm from Boston. What picture, what set of attributes pops into a European's mind when I say I'm American? Maybe you picture a fat cigar-smoking man driving a big car. Maybe a loud and pushy man with a tendency towards self-righteousness and violence. Now this is our mind, the great pattern-matching machine simplifying its world so we can stay on top of all the data. The problem is, I'm not that man. You're not that person. The worst manifestation of this abbreviation is when we categorize by race or gender or politics, and we label that person as orange, and then all the features and attributes of an orange person are assigned. Because we can categorize them, they lose their humanness. They become other, and suddenly we give ourselves permission to treat them as such. Scott Jurek is a complex and nuanced human. He's on his journey, same as each of us. Scott is an ultramarathon phenomenon, not just because of innate mental and physical ability, but also because of training his mind and his body and his soul towards that task. The lessons for you are twofold. First, be careful of categorizing or summarizing people. It's an efficient way of sorting and filing, but understand it for the approximation that it is. Decisions based on incomplete and biased data are bad decisions. Opinions based on incomplete and biased data 
are flimsy opinions. If you truly want to judge a person, you have to peer into and understand the swirling chaos behind their eyes. The great leaders and connectors of the world have this ability to peer into another's mind. They comprehend, and they move in the direction of understanding. The next time you look at someone and feel your great pattern matching machine categorize, sort, and file them, try another different approach. If you have the time, and if you care about understanding, look into their eyes, through the window, and into their soul, and see if you can make a connection. For behind those eyes is an infinity of thought and passion. Each one of us comes into this brief life gifted with an unprogrammed mass of wetware that we get to program and gets programmed for us. And each of us is a deep and complex ball of thoughts, emotions, desires, and fear. You are carrying yours, they are carrying theirs. Reach out and see if you can touch the storm of the other at a different level than the slipshod caricature that we default to. The second lesson, of course, is that there's no mystical or magical success stories. There's no magical luck waiting to reach into the crowd and pluck you into greatness. Greatness doesn't fall out of the sky on lucky people. Everyone is fated to live and die, but the path in between is bent by your decisions and your work. To live is to learn and to strive. Success is yours to define. Your life is yours to make. So, my friends, be curious. Before you is that great opportunity to do whatever and be whatever you want. So work hard on your experiment of one. Burn with the fury of a dying sun because that is what you are. As you spin and burn through this world, understand that others are on the same journey. If you can connect with them, if you can go beyond the caricature, your trip will be that much fuller. And now for today's featured interview. All right, Brian, we are back. You with me? I'm with you, Chris. So I can't remember when the last time we talked was. I think it was sometime last fall. Right. On the book, yeah, right? That's right. I think it was uh, in April or so. Yeah. Oh, that's uh, that's more than a year ago. Yeah. Well, actually, it was probably, um, it might have been like early early March, actually. It was right before I had run across Wisconsin. So I think it was in early March. So we talked before you ran across Wisconsin. Right. And you're running across Wisconsin a long way from uh, south to north. Correct. Um, so how did that go? I mean, I've driven that, and it's uh, you know it's it's kind of pretty. A lot of cows. <laughs> yeah. Um, most of, most of the route took me along the lakeshore, which which was fantastic. Uh, once we turned west and kind of went inland, it, it became kind of monotonous. You know, it was farm field with a farm field. Um, but, you know, I'd say two-thirds of it was beautiful. Yeah, how was the weather? Well, I, you know, I chose March because I, I was hoping it would be cool. I love running in cold weather. And uh, out of the blue, it was 82 degrees Saturday and Sunday. Um, yeah, so it was, it was, yeah. It was kind of brutal. Which, which doesn't sound warm, but if you're from the north, you know, and you get that warm, that 80-degree weather in March, it's like it's very warm because your body's not accustomed to it 
Exactly. Yeah. I think the warmest I had trained it up to that point was 40 degrees. So, uh, yeah. So, so it ended up being, how many miles did it end up being? Uh, it was 137 total. 137. And you said the, the first, uh, the first hundred weren't so bad, but the last 30 were kind of rough. <laughs> yeah. I actually really enjoyed the first hundred. Um, I don't know if you know Roy Prong, kind of an ultra running legend from Wisconsin. He decided to join me for the entire thing. So I had this great mentor with me for, you know, 35 hours, and it was a great opportunity for me to, to learn things from him. Um, so, you know, we stopped at the 100-mile mark, which was my first 100-miler, and we kind of celebrated for a few minutes, and we kept going. And probably with about 20, 22 miles to go, my body really started falling apart. Uh, so that last bit was, was pretty rough. Yeah. So yeah, did you have some something something go uh, south on you, like a knee or an ankle or something? Yeah, I had. Um, I normally don't blister, but my my feet were really blistered up, and then um, my right knee was was pretty bad. Uh, I ended up wrapping that a few times. Um, and that, like I said, I don't know if I can classify the last twenty as running, but uh, we did keep moving. <laughs> And I think if I remember correctly, you had some sort of reception scheduled for you at the end that you were going to talk to uh, reporters or something, which I don't know, yeah, that might not, be a, might not be a really good idea after running 137 <laughs> miles. It was pretty neat. We had um, well, the Fox, local Fox station basically followed us from the start to the finish. They interviewed us every so often. Um, and then we got to the, the finish at Fleet Feet in Appleton and we had a Fox station there, and they did some interviews. And uh, I couldn't say it was the best interview of my life, obviously, but I sat in a chair and tried to answer some questions. <laughs> yeah. And you don't look real good after that either. It's not, uh, no. it's not like you want to be on camera. No, I was surprised my wife even kissed me. Yeah. So, you know, you, you started this for Team Triumph, uh, which actually I ran for uh, Team Hoyt at Boston this year. Oh, did you? Uh, yeah, well, I ran most of Boston until they told me I couldn't run anymore. Yeah, yeah. And then you, uh, you've you been doing some other stuff since then, so it's interesting to me that, you know, you, it wasn't a one-and-done for you in terms of the the charity stuff. That seems to be something that's driving you. Originally, you got into it because your daughter had some, some surgeries, and that, that drove you to take up ultra-running and support different causes, but you know, now this is uh, this has grown. You've done some other things since then. So you did the uh, double at San Francisco, which is interesting. Right. So last year, while we were preparing for the 135 across Wisconsin, we were contacted by Worth the Hurt, which is kind of like the San Francisco Marathon's cause-based running arm. And um, they invited six athletes out to run it back, you know, front to back. So we went out there and uh, we were part of like a seminar series where we talked about cause-based running. And uh, I met Kevin Klein, who runs um, Snowdrop Texas. And just listening to him speak, it really hit home with me, just kind of, you know, everything that had to do with um, children's cancers. And he talked about um, the, pe- the families he met, the kids he met, and just kind of how it transformed his life. And my wife and I felt like we, we kind of went through that when our, when our daughter went through her surgeries. And we really want to get involved with children's charities, you know, after that point. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like Kevin drew the short straw on this because, I mean, you run across Wisconsin. I talked to another guy who runs across New Hampshire. Kevin lives in Texas. So he, he had to run across Texas. 
which is uh, 482 miles. That was pretty rough on him. His story was is inspiring and it's amazing. And he has this DVD called Dear Chelsea, which is the girl he started running for who, who passed away from cancer at age 17. Um, so I, I brought it home and I watched it. And we looked at each other and we said, this is what we want to do. So uh, I contacted Kevin and I told him, you know, I want to start Sun Drop in Texas. Are you cool with that? And he was like, absolutely, man. So him and his wife flew up and uh, we got everything in order. <clears throat> and then we started Sun Drop last October. In Wisconsin? In Wisconsin, yeah. And then you've got some other folks, and you guys are getting together this July 4th, which this interview may air after you've already done this, but there's four of you guys that are all running full marathons for four days straight or for 24 days straight. Right, 24 days, yeah. So I came with the idea, uh, there's 24 beds in the cancer unit at Children's in Milwaukee. And uh, I was talking to my daughter, and I said, you know, I want to I run a, a bunch of marathons in a row. And she's like, well, it has to mean something. I said, you're right. She said, well, what about, like, how many beds are in the cancer unit? And I told her, and she's like, well, there's your number. I'm like, all right. So I I uh, contacted um, a couple of friends of mine and um, my friend Tim Cunningham in New York. He said, you know, I'm going to run around, I'm gonna run around Central Park every day for 24 days. So he's going to do a marathon around Central Park. Barefoot. Barefoot, yes. He's a barefoot guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah he's, a, he's a super cool guy. Um, so then I, I contacted Kevin in Texas and told him what we were doing. And I knew he wouldn't back out. They, you know, just like most of us kind of have a mentality, if, if someone challenges you with something, you really don't say no. So he said, all right, man, I'm in. I'm in. Let me get my head around this, but I'm in. So he, he called me back and he said, we need someone on the other coast, like someone in California. So we, we got Lindsay Nelson, who lives in San Francisco. Uh, and then we had, so we had all the coast covered, Midwest, South, East, and West. And oh, I see. I see from your press release that Lindsay just finished uh, running with my friend uh, from MS Run Across America. Yeah, Ashley. Yeah. Ash. Yeah, you know Ashley. She's great. Yeah, Ashley and I are good friends. Oh, okay. So, does it ever get to a point where we're just doing too much of this stuff, Brian, and we overload the, you know, the the community when we say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna run across," you know whatever, for charity, people just sort of roll their eyes and say, another one? I don't think so. I mean, I think that it's amazing that people are willing to um, just kind of put their bodies through this and use their bodies as a vehicle to raise awareness. I, I found through my work that different charities speak to different people. So, you know, just because, you know, Ashley's running across the U.S. for MS, that's great. You know, but maybe that charity doesn't speak to, you know, Joe Smith. Maybe he's been touched by cancer. So, you know, a, a charity like Snowdrop really speaks to them, and they really get involved. And one of the things that we really focus on are the families that are affected by, you know, pediatric cancer. So we in, we involve the families as much as we can in the events that we do. So talk more about um, the families and uh, pediatric cancer. I mean, what what specifically are the challenges there? Well, you know, like I, I really liken it to... You know, when you get the flu and all you can think about for three days or whatever is, oh, I just want to feel healthy again. I just want to feel normal. Well, a child that has cancer, you know, he, he may be two years old, he may be 15, and all they want, all they can think about is getting better and being healthy, you know, getting back to a normal state. And just 
the the way the families are turned completely upside down, you know, with their jobs um, and with all the medical bills and, you know, the trips to the hospital for chemo and spinal taps and blood work. I mean, their whole world is turned upside down. And it goes on for a long time. You know, these kids, even after, if, even if they beat cancer, they, they're still struggle with illness for most of them for the rest of their life. So it's, it's a big deal, and it, it really never goes away for these families. Yeah. So what, where did uh, the, the term snowdrop come from? Yeah, so I, I get that question a lot. Um, so snowdrop is a flower, and it's considered to be the hardiest of all flowers. It can bloom even in the harshest conditions. So, you know, it's kind of an analogy to a child fighting cancer. You know, these kids are trying to overcome some of the harshest conditions possible. So the story is that the, the flower is the first to bloom and the last to, to, to go down for the season. And it's also said that when, um, when Jesus on the cross, Mary Magdalene shed a tear, and where the tear fell, a snowdrop bloomed. Oh, I get it. Okay. And so, so kids fighting cancer have some unique challenges because of just their, their body chemistry? Right. I mean, cancer in children is twice as aggressive as it is in adults. And, you know, pediatric cancer is considered, or it is, the least funded of all cancers in the U.S. So uh, there's a huge need uh, for awareness and funding. Yeah, it seems as though we, as we start to, um, to get better, and a lot of disease treatment that cancer seems to be bubbling to the top in uh, in a lot of different places mm-hmm. and other diseases like MS that they still are trying to get their, their arms around. So the, right. uh, the, the opportunity never goes away. It just gets, gets more specific and more focused. Right. right. And that's what we're seeing with some of the treatment plans is, you know, it used to be like, Oh, you have, you have cancer. Well, we're going to put you through chemotherapy. And it was kind of a cookie cutter approach. Um, I think now with, the more research and funding that goes into it, they're able to look at a case and say, okay, I, I think that, you know, we're going to do this for you and this for you. And ultimately the children benefit by having a better treatment plan. So what do you get out of this, Brian? What's, what's in it for you? What's in it for me? Uh, you know, I meet these kids. Uh, I think I've met eight to 10 kids since I started Snowdrop last year. And what I get out of it is, being able to t- to share their story and bring awareness for them. And, you know, a lot of times the kids that I meet, they're not going to benefit from what we're doing right now. It's the kids 10 years from now they are going to benefit. So it's really amazing to meet these families, and they know that too. But they're all on board. You know, they want – all they want is a cure, and all they want is the next parent that comes along not to have to deal with the same things their children are dealing with. So personally, I, I don't know what I – I don't get anything out of it. I just want – I want to help these kids. I want to help these families, you know. Well, what you get out of it is, uh, you know, the the fact that you're the reward, right? The personal reward, reward the intrinsic reward of uh, of making a difference, right? Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, you're doing this, um, this uh, what, 24 marathons in 24 days? Is that it? Right, right. And you're doing it over the 4th of July, so most of July. I'm pretty sure that's uh, that's that's pretty pretty hot in uh, in Wisconsin. It is. It's really hot, hot. Texas. <laughs> yeah, it's hot and humid in, in Wisconsin. Um, probably my saving grace. You know, I have four children, so 
Um, I do all my training between midnight and 6 a.m. So every day I'll be getting up at 2 a.m. to start my marathon. Um, so I'll be done. I'll be done by six, and then I get ready and go to work. Um, Kevin in Texas, he he's a radio personality, so he's doing all of his marathons between 11 and 5 p.m. during the hottest part of the day. Wow. Yeah, that's brutal. That's like 120 degrees. And Houston, um, unlike other parts of Texas, Houston actually has the humidity as well. Yeah. So you get yeah, the uh, – it's not a dry heat. <laughs> no. Um, I think Tim Cunningham in New York, he's an emergency uh, ER nurse. So he works through the night, and then when he gets off of work, he's going to run his marathon. So he's looking at 16-hour days um, for – 24 days easily. So if you're doing this, uh, you know, what's, what's a marathon going to take you four hours? You're starting at two o'clock in the morning. Yeah. Yeah. Going to work at six. So, you know, how much sleep are you getting a night? Well, I typically average about four hours of sleep a night. Even when you're not running? Yeah. Well, I run six days a week. So, um, there may be, I think the one day I don't run is the day my wife likes to sleep in, so I really don't get much sleep anyway. <laughs> um, so, yeah, typically, uh, I mean, on a daily basis, four to four and a half at the most. So have you always been like that, or is that something new? Uh, when I started doing endurance sports um, in 2007, uh, my wife kind of gave me an ultimatum. She said, I'll support this stuff as long as, she's like, you either go to bed with me or you wake up with me. So I said, all right, I'll go to bed with you. Um, so that kind of changed, you know, all my training. You know, I have to get up early enough to do what I want to do, um, and that means sacrificing sleep. Um, then I don't miss anything with my family. I don't miss any kids' games or school activities, you know, because let's be honest, endurance athletics tends to be kind of selfish. Um, you know, you're out there spending hours by yourself. Um, so I can do it in the middle of the night when everyone's sleeping. I don't miss anything. Uh, that just works for, for my family. Wow, that's amazing. I mean, I would uh, I would implode on four hours of sleep a night. <laughs> and that, you know, you'd show up for work. I'd be sleeping at my desk at work. I wouldn't be able to think or do anything. You get used to it. The first couple of weeks are rough, but you get used to it. Hmm. That's interesting. I once did, uh, my first Ironman, I, I was training. I, I got up at midnight. Actually, I started at midnight. I did a six-hour bike ride. And then we went to the Milwaukee Zoo for the rest of the day. And uh, I had to pull over on the drive home because I was falling asleep. That was probably one of the worst, the worst 24-hour periods of training. It was just brutal. So, I mean, what's next for you, Brian? This seems to be a tra- trajectory where you're going to go on to bigger and uh, better things. you ever think of, you know, doing this full-time as your work so you get some sort of uh, overlap? Um, I don't know. I- you know, I mean, one of the cool things about Snowdrop is there really are no paid positions. So I, I feel like I'm doing this because I, I want to, and, you know, all of our money all goes towards our mission. And um, I, I don't know if I'd want to take a position to get paid because it just wouldn't feel right in my heart. Um, so, you know, I, I like doing this on the side. I, I find it works. I've, I've been able to put it into my life and have it work well. So I, I don't think I'd want to do that. You know, I enjoy working. Um, I enjoy the dynamic that I have in my life right now. Um, so I, I love this. I, you know, for me, it's just about doing bigger and better things um, just to raise more awareness 
you know, like you said earlier, is there too much going on in the community? I don't know. I think that what's cool about it is each of us tend to do the next bigger thing and everyone's pushing each other and uh, we all kind of enjoy that. So, Yeah, if you look at what Ash is doing with her Run Across America this summer, uh, you know, she's collecting a ton of money, probably, you know, a quarter of a million dollars for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. She's very well, very, she's big time now, which is just amazing. Yeah, she's fantastic. And I, um, I love their charity. In fact, um, one of my best friends here in Appleton has MS, and I push him in a, in a racing chair every year for the Fox Cities Marathon. So, you know, all of us are pretty close, uh, which is really neat. You know, we could all be really competitive. Um, but we're not. We all support each other, and we're all you know looking forward to doing things together, um, which tends to be really neat. All right. Well, I'll let you get back to uh, get back to work here. But uh, hope, courage, and love. Right, Brian? That's right. All right. Well, good luck with this. I, I wish you luck running through the wilds of Wisconsin in the middle of the morning, and good luck with your charity. And thanks sure. for uh, taking the time to chat. Thanks for having me, Chris. Appreciate it. All right. Ciao. I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. A fun day at Fundy, the Bay of Fundy Marathon. There's this joke that some of the folks in my running club tell. These are the old timers who have run with me or trained with me. They tell stories of how I'd take a group out on a three to five mile fun run in the trails. And somehow I would get lost. And it would always seem to turn into a two-hour suffer fest. And there I would be with my dog, smiling and chatting away, oblivious to the fact that other people might not be enjoying the extra miles as much as I was. And my friend Anthony, who taught me how to ride a mountain bike, and his wife Leanne, they made up a name for it. They'd listen to the complaints, they'd smile a knowing smile, and they'd say, you got rustled. I can't help it, I love to run. I love to throw myself at a worthy long run or race and make it beat me. I am never happier than when a race or a run kicks my ass. The Bay of Fundy Marathon kicked my ass. It whispered sweet nothings in my ear like a cunning blind date. It lied to me and then celebrated my naivete with a good old-fashioned hard marathon. My kind of race, beautiful and cruel. It seemed like a good plan. <laughs> <laughs> it seemed like a good plan. After missing my qualifying time by four minutes at the beautiful but tough Vermont Shires Marathon, I was confident that I needed just more at-bats to make up those four minutes. Never wanted to plan too far ahead. I surfed MarathonGuide.com to see if there were any other drivable marathons around that I could jump into and take another try. And the Bay of Fundy Marathon looked like a good choice. It was about a six-hour drive. The course map looked challenging, but not overwhelming. I would pick up Maine as another state on my 50 states list. And based on my performance in Vermont, I figured with another solid training cycle, I should be able to qualify. My training had been going well. And I was feeling strong and light after the Shires race, so why not strike while the iron is hot? In the 70s, when I was a kid, maybe 10 years old, my parents decided it would be a great idea to pack us four kids into the car and do a driving vacation of Maine and eastern Canada. This is why we Americans think the original vacation movie with Chevy Chase is so funny, 
because we have all lived some version of it ourselves. I don't remember much about that trip other than the six of us having to sleep in my folks' Renault station wagon somewhere in Quebec when we couldn't find a hotel room. But I do remember the Bay of Fundy. I have this loop of Super 8 film in my head of the disappointing dirty little wave rolling up the bay as the tide came in. As I parked in Lubeck, Maine, and walked towards the Canadian border control to check in for the race, I was on that same bridge from where I remembered that Super 8 perspective. This was a first-year race that ran from Maine across the bridge into Canada, perambulated an out-and-back on Campobello Island, to finish back across the border in Maine. Since we would be running across the border a couple times, all the runners had to check in at Canadian Border Control, where they gave us our bib numbers and logged us in. During the race, there was a timing mat on the border, with border agents matching the numbers against the list of people who had checked in. To make the check-in requirements, I had to leave my house early on Saturday. I picked up a rental car at 9 a.m. and drove six hours north, and east, to the easternmost point in the United States. It was uneventful. I got to catch up on some of my podcasts. Because I like my racing cheap and easy, (laughs) I got a Toyota Corolla for free on a credit for Enterprise having screwed up a previous rental and packed it up with my camping gear and a cooler with my race bottles, some fruit, and some other food. The entire trip, besides the race fee, costs somewhere around $60 in gas and a $28 Canadian for the campsite. So yes, I am compulsive and cheap. When I was checking in, I got an impossible-to-hear phone call from Aaron. Aaron is a guy from my club who I don't know that well, who was also running the race. Where we were was the edge of cell phone coverage. But I discerned that he was just behind me on his way to check in, and I waited for him at the tourist center. He wanted to go to the pre-race pasta dinner, but I'm not a big fan of those. It just seems like a waste of time and energy to go wait in line at a school cafeteria for poorly cooked spaghetti. So I demurred and told him I'd meet him at the start in the morning. I had told him that I was trying to run a 3.30 marathon, and he had decided that since that was a slow pace for him, he believed himself more in the 315 range, but he was currently fighting some niggles, he'd pace me. Fine with me, I'm always happy for a little company. Then I drove the course and realized that I had been duped by this pretty cruel race. The course was all hills, big hills, little hills, shallow hills, steep hills. The whole thing was hills and my heart sank a little as I realized that this was not a BQ course for me on my current fitness and training. It hadn't looked that bad on the website, so what happened? On the website, the course map was linked to an elevation map on mapmyrun.com, and when I looked at it, there appeared to be two reasonably sized hills that you'd have to run twice, once on the way out and once on the way back. And each of these hills seemed to be, you know, somewhere less than 200 feet of elevation gain. So around 800 feet total for the race, which is really nothing. And I knew I hadn't been specifically training for hills, but I thought I could manage to to survive a couple and race the rest of the course. 
So apparently what happened was when the elevation profile was scaled to fit all 26.2 miles onto the screen, the prolific elevation gains and losses were masked out. They were smoothed out. What looked like one hill was really a series of five or six shorter hills that didn't scale on the profile. When I uploaded my Garmin data after the race, it would report I had trekked over 3,000 feet of elevation gain. Now I was checking into my humble campsite on Campobello Island, wondering what to do. But I already knew what I would do. I would take my current fitness and race the race. Marathons can hold hidden miracles. You never know. I checked into the campsite and drove out to where I could pick up some cell phone reception. I sent a text to Aaron, telling him about the course. I sent a text to my family, checking in. And I went back to the campsite and set up my tent. I went for a long walk around the camp at Herring Cove Provincial Park. I had brought an air mattress with me, but I had forgotten a pump. So I patiently lay in my tent, exhaling great plumes of air from my runner's lungs into the vinyl bladder. I thought maybe this was part of my training, part of my karma. I rolled out my sleeping bag and was treated to the comforting smell of dog butt. Yeah. Apparently the dog had been the last one to use this sleeping bag, and someone had rolled it up and put it away without cleaning it. But he was with me, not only in spirit, but in vapors. There were a couple scattered campers here and there, but the place was 80% empty. I visited the restaurant at the golf course for a sandwich, and I went down and gazed at the empty half-mile of black sand beach, where the creme de la creme of the East Coast moneyed class spent their summers in Victorian times. They had the most interesting-looking IPA at the restaurant, but it was a big pint bottle and 6.5% alcohol, so I had to take a pass with a marathon less than 12 hours away on a hilly course. I was worried about getting up in the morning. The Canadian side was in a different time zone than the U.S. side, and my iPhone battery was getting drained from fruitlessly searching for a network. The campsite had a power outlet on a post, so I ran an extension cord into the tent and plugged in my laptop and connected my iPhone to the USB. I crawled into my stinky sleeping bag, spat out some dog hair, and read a little in the dwindling twilight. It was the summer solstice and the longest day of the year, and I was very far north and east. Add to this the rising of the biggest moon of the year, and it never really got dark in my tent. And it didn't matter. I slept great. And I didn't have worried about the alarm because I was up with the sun. I had tactically prepared a small container of my usual oatmeal with fresh blueberries, raw almonds, and honey. And I ate it cold with a venti Starbucks coffee, also cold, that I had smartly procured the day before. A man can't race without coffee and fuel. I packed up my camp and was back across the border and parked at the school in time for the first bus to the start. It was full of the sunshine start crowd. These were walkers and slower runners or anyone who just wanted extra time on the course. There were the marathon maniacs and the 50 staters. And I really liked these people. They were really low stress. They run marathons, exploring the world one race at a time. They know what they're doing. They're low maintenance. Most of them are older, and this is their thing that they are doing in their retirement instead of driving a Winnebago to Yellowstone. The buses dropped us off at a lighthouse, and I got to see the sunshine start. The race director, John, was an Aussie, 
and he reminded me a lot of Kevin Malloy, another Aussie who started both my running club and the Groton Road Race. It was a beautiful day in a beautiful place with the bright morning sun in the Atlantic Ocean. John lined up the sunshine start folks and apologized that while he had a Canadian for the Canadian anthem, his American anthem singer had not shown up. And then a woman, one of the racers, maybe in her 60s, stepped out of the gathered crowd and volunteered. And I don't know if it was my sleep deprivation or being in such a beautiful place on such a beautiful day, but both anthems brought tears to my eyes as I reflected on how lucky I was and how great it was to be here now at this place. After the runners had left, I had the starting area all to myself with a handful of other runners. I did my routine of stretching and fueling and rubbing and taping and greasing. I talked to a gentleman from St. Louis who was on TV at the Boston Marathon, one of the last to finish. He was the guy right in front of the older gentleman who got knocked down by the first blast. As the later buses began to roll in with their crops of nervous amateur athletes, I met with Aaron. Aaron is a chatty guy. I told him about the course and that I was racing anyhow. He was fine with that and promised to do his best to keep me from going out too fast. At 8 a.m., we stood through another rendition of the anthems and were off. From the start, Aaron was troubled with my approach. I told him I like to burn off a little adrenaline early and put a couple of minutes in the bank. And he kept telling me I was going too fast. And I'd respond by telling him I had seen the course and we would need all the time we could bank. And after a few miles at an average pace in the 730s, we climbed the bridge over the mud flats with their heavy, dank, organic ocean smells. The weather was perfect, no warmer than 60 degrees with a slight ocean breeze. I was cooler than I had been at Vermont, and I wasn't sweating as much. Then the hills started, and we got to work. The first couple hills we managed to push through, still averaging sub-8s. I was sipping my Gatorade handheld and barely taking anything from the water stops. We had three minutes in the bank going into the half marathon, but it was starting to get hard. On a particularly steep hill around mile 14, I decided to walk and not push through to save my legs. And shortly after cresting that hill, I turned to Aaron and said, I think I'm going to have to pull the plug on this one. I meant I didn't think I could hold race pace on the hills. But on the following downhills, I felt strong, so I made a reverse decision to push, and I stopped looking at my watch and decided to walk around the uphills and push the pace on the downhills. I made myself a deal that if I still had any time in the bank at mile 20, I'd go for broke, and if not, I'd back off and fun run it into the finish. Aaron, caught by surprise by me saying one thing and doing the opposite, let me go. I raced on alone to the headlands and the turnaround. It was particularly disheartening to know that all those same hills we had pushed through on the way out, we had to push through on the way back. I passed the runners behind me, and I saw many of them sort of walking in grim. My effort level was good, and I was working hard. I threw away my bottle and my sunglasses and got to work, but I was walking too much, and my downhill pushes weren't enough to make up the difference, and I knew the 20-mile mark was coming up. The mile marks were painted on sandwich boards by the side of the road, 
and I saw one coming that had a 20 written on it and checked my watch. And by some miracle, if my math could be trusted, I still had two and a half minutes in the bank. And while I was trying to figure out how this could be possible and prematurely celebrating my victory, I realized that this was the 20K marker on the other side of the road through some cruel twist of course planning was within a half a mile of the 20-mile mark on my side of the road. When the correct mile marker finally came into view, I was more than two minutes in the red. And checking my systems, I was okay for finishing the race, but there was no way I was going to make up a couple minutes in the last 10K with two to three more big hills to come. So I backed off and walk-jogged the rest. I didn't bonk, but my legs were fairly beat up from the hills. I think it took till Thursday for the soreness of my quads to go away. The last three-quarter mile into the finish is a super smooth downhill with only the short little bump of the bridge to slow your progress. The finish is right on Main Street in Lübeck, one of those postcard main villages right up against the bay. I wheeled back through customs in a good mood now that I didn't have to worry about race times, and I joked with the border guards that I was smuggling lobsters in my shorts, and I ended up just over 344, so not a not-so-special 17-minute positive split <laughs> that earned me 65th place out of 488. Uh, the metal was a locally made cast of a scallop shell, which was a nice touch, and it matched the lobster pot bait bag that they gave us our packets in. Nice touches. I saw John, the race director at the finish, shook his hand and thanked him for a good first-year event. These are exactly the kind of races I love. Lord save me from a 50,000-person city race. Give me the open road in a beautiful unknown corner of the world with a couple hundred like-minded lunatics. That's the race for me. Aaron rolled through about 15 minutes later. I had been expecting him to pass me late in the race based on his big talk, but my fast start and the hills caused his hamstring to lock up, and he got rustled. I gave him a handful of Enduralites for the cramping as we limped back to the school to get our cars. Am I happy with the race? Yeah, I am. I ran strong, but I wasn't trained or fit enough to race a time on that course. The six weeks since Vermont had not gone as well as I hoped. My body began to show the familiar signs of overtraining and breakdown, and the Stanley Cup Finals and my work schedule kept me from getting enough sleep. After that last unfortunate 20-miler in the heat, I hadn't felt quite right. I had to cut back on my training to avoid the heel pain flaring up again. I felt overly tired, and other parts were achy as well, and I'm quite okay with running a strong race on a hard course with my body not at 100% and walking away from it. I still need to get some base fitness training. My speed and my mechanics are good. I was dropping comfortable 730s on the flats and downs, and my mechanics were the best they've been since the injury. I need to slow it down. I need to do some heart rate and form training, build my fitness at the cellular level, get my hill legs back, and get some muscle mass back on my legs. At the same time, I need to keep working on cleaning up my diet. I mean, dragging fat around with me doesn't help me race. I need to get clean fuel, not just to lose weight, but to be fit and lean. And I've never been very lean, but tomorrow's another day, and I can decide to do it if I choose to. I would recommend the Fundy Marathon. They did a great job for a first-year race. Everyone was super friendly. It's a stunningly beautiful place. And if you go, take the weekend, make a tour of it, the woods are lovely, dark, and deep, but I have promises to keep.
and miles to go before I sleep. And miles to go before I sleep. Okay, my friends, that's episode 3-265. Thanks for listening. I'm trying to talk the race directors from the Somerville Roadrunners 24-hour Around the Lake run on July 26th to let me in. The event circles a lake in Wakefield, Massachusetts, not too far from where I used to work in Woburn, Massachusetts, and I am pronouncing that correctly. And it's on a 3.2-mile loop, and it has a certified marathon course baked into it. It's pancake flat, so I think I probably could BQ on it. It starts on a Friday night at 7 o'clock, and there's always a chance of hot weather and thunderstorms there. But if I get in, that'll be interesting. It will keep my streak going. Then I have the Pocatello Marathon at the end of August, and I'm not going to get hung up on the streak thing. I'm just trying to run and have some fun. So thanks to Alex for helping edit this week's show so I could get it out. If you get the show notes or visit my site, you will see that I signed up as an affiliate for Brooks Sports. I usually shy away from these sort of things because there's just not enough money in it to make it worth my while. But I like the company, and I run in Brooks Shoes. So I use the Cascadias for my trail runs and the launches for my speed work. I really like the launches. They're nice and light and fast. I really like the Cascadias. They're my type of trail shoe. And I think Scott Jurek actually was involved in designing both these shoes. So that's cool. He's a Brooks athlete. And if you click through the links in the show notes or on the banner on my site to buy shoes, I get a commission now. So if you're buying them anyhow, that's a good place to go. So thanks for coming along and my adventures. We'll hopefully do some more. And I hope to see you out there. Thanks for listening, folks. I do appreciate your support. Run Run Live is a free service for you because I like writing and telling stories. I also love to meet folks, so feel free to reach out to me at Gmail or any of the other social networking sites. I'm C-Y-K-T Russell, and as you know, that's Chris Yellow King Tom Russell with two S's and two L's. My website is www.runrunlive.com. And most, if not all, of this content is posted out there. If you want the show notes to magically show up in your inbox when I publish a show in a beautiful HTML wrapper, you can subscribe to the mailing list at my site. It's a useful thing. If you're moved by something I say or interested and would like to see if what I wrote is the same thing, you can find it there, and it also has all the links to everything and everyone that I talk to and about. Other than that, my friends, thank you for the attention. Do epic stuff, and let me know if I can help. Ciao.